a lot of the things that we might think of as being bugs of childhood, like the fact that children are so noisy, both literally and metaphorically, that they're so variable, they're so random, they do all these weird things. They, they have this crazy pretend play that doesn't seem to make any sense. The fact that they spend so much time playing, the fact that they have a much broader uh, perception, the fact that they're not good at focusing their attention, the fact that they're not good at delaying gratification, all those things that seem like bugs are actually features if you think about a system that's designed to explore as much as possible, get as much information about the world as possible. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Right along with a former Navy SEAL physician, embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists, deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mangan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today we're exploring the world of childhood, a, quote, protected space in which they, children, can produce new ways of thinking and acting that, for better or worse, are entirely unlike any that we would have anticipated before, unquote. A protected space that exceeds that in length of any other species, a space of time that today's guest has spent her entire career studying and often refers to as humanity's R&D department. Alison Gopnik is likely a familiar name to many of you, especially those of you out there who are parents. Currently a professor of psychology and philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley, Allison has published over 100 research articles and books, including critically acclaimed bestsellers such as The Scientist in the Crib, The Philosophical Baby, and The Gardener and the Carpenter. She's appeared everywhere, from TED, Talks at Google, the World Economic Forum, and even Stephen Colbert's show. She's also a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal's Saturday Review section. We covered a lot of ground in this episode. We'll learn how young children and babies begin to understand the world around them, how researchers actually study this. We'll learn about something called theory theory, a process that allows young children to develop and test intuitive theories about their world. We'll see how this process resembles Bayesian probability and how understanding childhood cognitive development may be a key to developing advanced AI. This is also something Allison is researching. No surprise, she lives right in the middle of the Bay Area, and she's even married to one of the founders of Pixar. Anyway, I think this was one of my favorite episodes. As a father of two young daughters myself and a longtime fan of Allison's work, it was just a real privilege to get to sit down with Allison for an hour and talk with her about everything I've been wondering about and, uh, and more. I think you're going to enjoy it as well. And with that said, let's get started. Allison, welcome to the show. We're so delighted to have you. Pleased to be here. All right. So we were talking earlier. I've got a couple little kids and we're, we're going to ask a lot of questions about that. <laughs> me selfishly as a, as a dad of a almost four-year-old and a two-year-old. But I thought we'd start with a, a slightly different question here. And this is maybe for some of the older parents out there with older kids. What do you think about the idea of an upper limit to childhood? Is there a, is science ever going to come up with an age that childhood ends and adulthood begins? Is that possible? How do you think about a question like that? Because we've heard, you know, numbers like 25, that's when the prefrontal cortex is pretty well developed. Uh, gosh, in Keith's world of orthopedics, you've got the riser scale for looking at bone development. There's all these other things, but how, how do you think about that transition from childhood to adulthood? Is there, is there a, a set age? Well, one of the things that I'm really interested in is the very fact of childhood itself. So we just sort of take it for granted that there is such a thing as childhood. 
But that's actually a very strange thing from an evolutionary perspective that we have this long period of time when, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, we're taking more, taking in more care than we're providing. And it's particularly striking for humans because we have a much like twice as long a childhood. Even, even if you only think of childhood as ending in adolescence than, than any of our closest primate relatives. So by the time a chimp is seven years old, they're producing as much food as they're consuming. And even in forager cultures, we aren't doing that until we're at least 15 and, and often much beyond that. Um, again, even in forager even in forager cultures. And you could argue that as we've gotten more resources, as we've had industrialization, that period has gotten longer and longer. Uh, now, one of the things that I think is interesting about humans as well is that we also, even as adults, can switch back and forth from this way of being in the world that's like our childhood way of being in the world, being exploratory, playful, taking in information to the more adult version, which is going out in the world and making things happen and getting resources and being focused and so forth. So in a way, as adults, adult humans seem to be able to switch back and forth between being childlike and being adult-like. Now, so we have two things. We have this long period when mostly what's happening is that uh, the brain and the mind is being childlike. And then we also have this ability later on in life to switch back and forth from sort of one way of being in the world to the other. So that's why you're asked, answering your question is, is difficult. It's more like what happens is that we do increasingly more adulting as we, uh, as we get older, but we can switch back into, into being more childlike uh, throughout our lives. Um, and I think the, you know, you were mentioning your two and four-year-old, I think up until about five, we're almost completely in the explore uh, we're almost completely in the explore mode. We're we're really children up to about four or five. And as as you probably know, you know, when the four year old decides to help with something, it means that it takes twice as long or three times as long. <laughs> but you know, my nine year old or my seven year old uh, grandchild can actually really help. You know, they can really do things that look more like adult. Uh, uh, activities. And it most times, in most places, by the time children are nine or 10, they're starting to do things that are more adult like. Um, so I think it's really this transition from this very early period up till about five or six, when you're just purely in this explored childlike mode to um, full blown adulthood when your prefrontal cortex is in there controlling things and letting you, uh, letting you uh, do long term planning letting you inhibit your impulses. Uh, but even in adults, it turns out that when we do some things, we release that uh, executive control and then we can do other things like daydream or be more creative or do things that are more childlike. Yeah, or even playing with your kids, which is a whole different phase of life I never imagined. It's, uh, it's almost like getting a second chance in a way, but uh, it's, it's even the sm smallest things of you know painting a rock or something like we were doing yesterday. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, well, one of the things that I think is really great about being a parent and sort of underappreciated about being a parent, even greater when you're a grandparent, is that simultaneously you're doing the most grown-up thing you're ever going to do. I mean, there's really nothing you're going to do in your life that's 
as important or as responsible as taking care of children. But on the other hand, you actually get to be a child. So you actually get to have a sort of contagion of, oh, painting a rock, like that's the best thing you could do. Or, you know, walking down the street, um, there's a million interesting things on this street that I never saw before. Uh, or my, uh, my sister, who's also a grandmother, was just writing me this morning and saying, oh, she spent the whole morning crawling on the ground with her grandson pretending to be different kinds of animals. And like, you really don't get much of a chance to do that in your everyday life if you don't have a child you're taking care of. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, before we get going here, I think it's important for those who just don't understand a lot about how develop, uh, child developmental research goes. I think that there's a lot of uh, conceptions, preconceptions we have about adult psychology research. And, you know, there's always the jokes about the undergrad cohorts getting free pizza to show up for a study. It, it, there's a lot of differences about studying young children. Help us understand, and there's a lot of ways you can do it, but how that type of research is different, how observing young children who may not even be able to answer questions yet or talk to you, but still have an understanding what's going on through a two-year-old's head. How, how, uh, help us just, I mean, maybe just paint a picture of, of a, uh, you know, a laboratory setting and what you're looking for, you know, with a two-year-old, for example, how does it, how does it differ from studying adults? Yeah. So one of the real stories of the last 30 or 40 years is that our scientific picture of what young children are like has been just completely transformed, completely overturned. And the reason is that we've developed all these new techniques for studying them. So for a long time, people thought that children were egocentric and solipsistic and irrational and couldn't understand cause and effect and, and so forth. Um, but a lot of the reason for that was that we couldn't get them to tell us what was going on in their, in their minds. So, you know, if you give a baby, as you're saying, you know, put a baby in a lab with a four part questionnaire and you're not going to get anything that looks very <laughs> useful. And, you know, even if you ask your three-year-old to tell you, uh, I don't know if it's a he or a she. It's she, a, both girls, yeah. Yeah, to tell you what she's thinking, you'll get a beautiful poem, poem about ponies and birthdays, but you won't get anything that sounds very coherent. So we had to figure out new techniques for getting babies and young children to tell us what they know. And the main thing that we discovered is that if you look at what children do rather than what they say, you can find out a lot about what they're thinking. Um, so the kind of experiments that we do with two-year-olds, instead of trying to get a two-year-old to answer a question, what we would do is say something like, look, here's, these, here's this machine and it will light up and play music. And here's a red block and a blue block. Which one do you want to put on the machine? And we can give the children, for instance, a lot of stat complicated statistical information about the blocks and what they do on the machine and what happens if you put combinations on. And even though the children obviously can't tell you about the statistics, they'll choose the right thing to do when it comes to putting something on the machine. Mm -hmm. And even with infants, even with, you know, six month olds, three month olds, you can do things like look at what they look at. So you can show them two different pictures, um, one of which is more surprising than the other from an adult point of view, and see if they look longer at the surprising picture. So looking at what children uh, look at, looking at what they do is gives you a better window into their minds than listening to what they say. And even in terms of listening to what they say, one of the things that we discovered is that although if you give them a free form question, you'll get a very free form answer. If you say something like, uh, for instance, in one of the, the famous experiments that we did back in the 80s, you say something like, here's this box of candies 
that's all closed up like this. Let's open it up. Oh, look, there's pencils inside. Sorry, there's a candy box with pencils inside. And then we say, if Nikki from the daycare comes in and looks at this, will he think there are pencils inside or will he think there are candies inside? And then if you just give the children those two alternatives, which is it, pencils or candies, three and four-year-olds will tell you that, interestingly, the four-year-olds will tell you, oh, he'll think there are candies inside. So they'll say he'll think there are candies. Three-year-olds say he'll think that there are pencils inside. So just by giving them this simple contrast, is, does he think smarties? Does he think, uh, uh, sorry, does he think candies? Does he think pencils? You can get them to tell you something actually quite deep about what they think about other people's minds. Interesting. Do many of these studies, is it almost like you're setting up a daycare, say at Berkeley, and you drop the kids off and you watch them throughout the day? Or are you trying to watch them more in a natural environment with, with other caregivers, parents? I mean, how are they structured? So we do them in different ways for different studies, but the kind of uh, uh, most common thing that we do is we go into one of the preschools and just sit in a little chair, a little bit away from the other kids. And we come in and say, oh, we're gonna play games. Who wants to come and play games? And the children come and, uh, and sit opposite the researcher who's right there in the preschool. Sometimes a, a real resource is we've discovered is uh, museums, children's museums and science museums. So we'll oh. go to some place like the marvelous, wonderful Bay Area Discovery Museum in, uh, in, uh, in the Bay Area. and have kids who are already there in the museums and, and work with them. But we also think it's very important to look at uh, diverse children. So we've also done this in Head Start programs and we've done this in, um, in rural Peru as well. So we try to figure out how to do it. But the good thing is, you know, most little kids are very happy to sit and talk to a grown up and play games. So that's essentially what we do. Has there been any effort with studies like that to try to factor in how important the home is? I mean, it occurs to me if you're going to somewhere like the Discovery Museum, these kids are already receptive. They've already started to think about right. fun, cool things that they're seeing. And so you say, come over and play a game. They're going to be in, they're going to have their thinking caps on, as it were. Um, what happens when they're at home, like with the TV on, things like that, and, and is in a different type of environment? Does that change the results of the studies? Well, one interesting thing, well, this is part of the reason, by the way, that we did the Head Start in Peru uh, studies, because we wondered, is it, is it just you know, the kids who are going to the Science Museum who are mm -hmm. going to be able to do all these amazing things like figuring out what causes what or taking statistics and making inferences from it or figuring out what's going on in somebody else's mind, the kinds of things that we study. Uh, and somewhat to our surprise, these low-income children in Peru, for example, who are growing up in, in sort of the equivalent of favelas outside of uh, Lima, first-generation immigrants, do brilliantly at these studies. I mean, they do just as well in some studies better than the middle-class uh, children. But of course, those children are growing up in a very rich environment where there are lots of people taking care of them. They have lots of interesting things around them. It's not the same as the environment we would have in, in the Bay Area, but it's still a very rich environment and they're being taken care of and being cared for. Um, so we think that the things that we're looking at are things that are just part of what it's like to be a child, part of children's spontaneous uh, development. But it is true that one of the things we have to do is figure out, I think this is actually an advantage we have is that, you know, the undergrads will basically do what you tell them to do. 
Uh, as you may have noticed, the two-year-olds do not do that. <laughs> uh, so yeah. if you if you want a two-year-old to be in your experiment, you have to figure out something that the two-year-old thinks is really cool and fun to do and is interested in spontaneously. And that's, you know, that's a big part of the art of doing this. Yeah, because I'm thinking just getting them to sit down for story time at night is uh, almost an impossibility. <laughs> so the idea that you can get them to do, well, anything is amazing, but... Of course, that's your job, well, right, Allison? It, it's a nice, it, you know, it, it's interesting because it provides actually a nice um, benefit for us because we can be pretty sure that if they're doing it and engaged, it's something that they care about. So that's the point about, you know, is it something they do at home? They won't do things if they're not interested and they're not trying to figure them out and they're not exploring them and they're not and they're not learning from them. So, so that that gives us a kind of, you know, it's kind of like if the experiment works at all. It probably means that it's tuning into something that's naturally there in the children. Interesting. What do they think about us as parents? You know, so, say a two-year-old to a four-year-old. Um, what do they understand of mom and dad or just a mom, you know, whatever the, the situation is? Obviously, at least it's obvious to me that they look at my wife and I as different than their teachers, different than grandma, different than some of our other friends. What, what is their concept of a parent at that age? Well, the interesting thing, another interesting thing about, uh, about humans from an evolutionary perspective is that we evolved to have a much wider range of caregivers for babies than other um, animals have. So a chimp, essentially the biological mom is doing almost all of the taking care of, especially the young ones, the, the infants. But as long as we've been human, we've had uh, fathers taking care of babies as well as mothers. We've had this remarkable thing, which is the extra 20 years that we have between 50 and 70, we have grandmothers uh, and grandfathers. We've had cousins, what we've had what anthropologists call alloparents, which means people who aren't actually biologically related, but are still involved in caregiving. Um, caregiving just seems to be a very, very natural thing for human adults to do when they're with a little child and vice versa. Human children seem to be very, very finely tuned to signals about oh, is this a potential caregiver? Is this someone who could be, who could be looking after me? Um, and there's a fascinating recent article by Sarah Hurdy, who's a great anthropologist. She actually has a really interesting argument, which is that that ability that human babies have to engage with caregivers, you know, that ability they have to make you feel like they're just the most adorable, cute thing in the world and all you wanna do is take care of them. Um, she thinks that may be part of what lets us thrive as human adults as well. So it's kind of like we develop that ability to be charming um, as you know six month olds because we really need to have lots of people taking care of us. Um, but then if we can continue to use some of that charm as adults, that lets us uh, that lets us cooperate and thrive. And that's after all one of the things that humans are are really good at doing. I think that's a wonderful. I don't know that we have evidence for it yet, but I think it's a wonderful theory. And the point is that children are very, very tuned into, am I in a situation where someone is caring for me or not? And when they know that they're in that situation, that's the, the, um, the signal for them to explore and learn and do all the things that their childlike minds can do. Yeah. So it's less important at that age about mom and dad. I mean, those are two people they call mom and dad, but it's more who, right. who can I trust at this point, right? Exactly. So who is someone who I can go to? Who's someone who's got my interest in mind? Who's someone who's going to provide me with care? And kids are both very good at 
sort of detecting, oh, this is grandma. Um, and, also, um, and also at calling out that kind of uh, caregiving behavior. I'll tell you a little story about that. I kind of, it's kind of sweet about one of my grandchildren, my, uh, my five-year-old. So of course, because of the pandemic, we haven't, tragically, we haven't seen them for a year. Um, and we just got vaccinated and we finally got to see them again and we spent a week taking care of them. And he said, Grandma, Grandma, now this is funny. This is funny. You know, in my mind, I have my comfort picture of my family. It's in my mind. I have my picture of my family. And you keep scooching into that picture. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a lovely description of you know, oh, I'm getting the signals that you're a potential caregiver, so you're scooching into the picture with my, uh, uh, with all my other caregivers. <laughs> Do we have any idea what they dream about, by the way? This wasn't even on my list here, but I, I ask my, especially my almost four-year-old a lot, you know, what did you dream about last night? And, and more often, if I, if I seed it with something, did you dream about this that happened yesterday? That's what she dreamed about. I, I get, I, I'm not totally sure she's answering my question or not. Um, do we have any idea? I mean, what we're, and we're talking about like age two to three around there. Right. Well, we know that infants and children in general uh, spend much more of their time in what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, than grownups do. So they sleep much more and specifically they spend much more time in the kind of sleep that in grownups is connected to dreaming. And we know that that kind of we have fascinating brain studies recently that show that that kind of sleep is very involved in learning and exploration. So, uh, and we also have some studies with babies and children showing that, for instance, if they have a nap after you show them something, they understand it more deeply, they generalize it more, they remember it uh, better than if they don't have a nap after they see that information. So, um, if we think that for adults, dreaming is a way that we have of taking all the information we get in the day and sorting it out and you know, figuring it out, making sense out of it, um, then I think that's even more true for, uh, that's even more true for babies and young children. Interesting. Now I'm gonna try to resist the temptation to start asking you what we're gonna call parenting <laughs> advice, because I know you get these, these annoying questions a lot, but um, on the idea of sleep, right? I mean, that's something parents of young kids are, are thinking about not only for them, but for ourselves, right? Right. Um, it, does is there enough research to say that at this age, maybe up to five, still having that nap is pretty important? Or are there some kids where they just don't need the nap anymore? I mean, what do we know about that? Well, we know that there's tremendous. In, uh, you know, my answer to sort of any parenting question is there's tremendous differences between individual children, and it just depends on what the individual child is is like. So we know that sleeping in general is really important for children and for older children and teenagers too. That's the one thing that I would say is, you know, a good piece of recommend, a good practical recommendation is to try to make sure that the children are getting enough sleep. Um, uh, but that can vary a lot for individual, uh, that can vary a lot for individual children and the children can kind of tell you something about how, how much um, sleep they're, they're getting and they need. So theory of mind, tell us about this and how this comes into play in your research. Yeah, so this is back in the 80s when, when I started doing uh, my research. The, the wisdom about children was that they couldn't really think very much about other people, that they were egocentric, that they couldn't take the perspective of another person. And even the great 
developmental psychologist Jean Piaget said that children couldn't take the perspective of another person. And we thought maybe that was one of these examples where we just weren't asking them the question in the right way. And back in the 80s, uh, a bunch of us sort of interesting because it was my, I did my first degree in philosophy and I'm still in the philosophy department at, at Berkeley as well as psychology. And of course, for philosophers, this is a really deep question about how is it that you understand what's going on in the mind of someone else? I mean, if you think about it, what you see when you look out in the world is a bunch of, you know, bags of skin that are stuffed into these pieces of clothing with little dots at the top that move back and forth. But nobody sees the world that way. What we see are people with thoughts and beliefs and desires and so forth. So, and it's a really important part of our adult life. Maybe the thing we think about more than anything else is what is that other person uh, what is that other person thinking? So we wanted to see if we could figure out when children could do this. And we use these very simple devices like the question about the candies and pencils that I mentioned. And then with uh, babies, we used even simpler things like the baby deciding whether they sh should give someone broccoli or, or crackers, uh, depending on what the person said that they wanted. And we showed that even very young children already understand a lot about the minds of others. And even babies already seem to be linking their own experience to the experience to the uh, experiences they see um, on the face of others. So instead of thinking that children are egocentric and have to do all this work to take another person's perspective, it's more like they sort of start out connected to other people. And a lot of the work is actually figuring out that you're different from other people. Talking about philosophy, um, I'm just going to read a quote here from The Philosophical Baby, your book. Uh, mm -hmm. Quote, children are both profound and puzzling, and this combination is the classic territory of philosophy. Yet you could read 2,500 years of philosophy and find almost nothing about children, unquote. That's really astonishing when you think about it, that you know, there's very little written about that and, until more recently. One, why, why do you think that was? Why did it take so long to become interested in children? We're all children at one point, after all, so... It's it's not completely foreign. What, what, what well, do you, think you know, I think there's there's a very simple explanation, which is that there were people all through history who were thinking a lot about children and paying attention to children, and then there were people who were writing philosophy books <laughs> and psychology books. And sorry to say, this guys were also being doctors and pediatricians and psychiatrists and. The first group of people were almost all women and the second group of people um, were almost all men. And, and in philosophy in particular, very few of them were actually taking care of children. So I think anybody who's, one of the things that's really interesting about developmental psychology and uh, I think about children and babies, especially and young children is, you know, if you're kind of an outsider and you're just looking from outside, it's really hard to make sense out of what babies and children are doing. And it's only when you're in that kind of intimate relationship where you're actually taking care of them and you're with them a lot that you get the clues about what's going on inside of their minds. So it's really in the context of taking care of them over an extended period where you've kind of got all day to talk to them and see what they're doing that they're, what they think starts to kind of make sense. If you just look at, I mean, even if I look at a baby for 20 minutes, I, I have a hard time figuring out what's going on with that particular baby. So I think, you know, the moms and the grandmothers and, and the caregivers, the uncles and uh, fathers who were involved in caregiving were sort of seeing, gee, there seems to be a lot going on there and thinking about that too. But the people who were sort of doing the official philosophy and theology and science uh, were not mostly the people who were spending their time 
uh, caregiving. And I think that's the reason why there was such a disconnect. And once people in the, in the 60s and 70s started, you know, once women who had kids started becoming philosophers and psychologists and psychiatrists, and once psychologists and psychiatrists and philosophers started having babies and taking care of them, you started to see more uh, appreciation for the importance of childhood. And having the tools and the right questions, right? I mean, methodologies. I mean, now you knew it was possible to ask questions of kids, which maybe before you didn't, so. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So from the scientific perspective, there was this big revolution in methods, which depended on things like having videotape, for example. So we depend, you know, I, I was mentioning, well, you know, you can do things like look at what babies are looking at or look at what they reach for, but you couldn't have recorded that objectively before you had videotape. So I think there's reasons why the science took a while, but you know, the philosophers could have been paying attention even without the scientific method. There's been a lot of discussion in history, particularly about the so-called invention of childhood, because they say, well, you know, up to a certain point, um, as soon as a kid could uh, walk and could carry something, they were, st- they were put into employee, um, they, they were uh, put to work. Um, and yet we have uh, historical records of toys that kids played with. Right. How much do you think the social um, milieu affects the development of, of children in that setting? Do they, did these kids have what we would now recognize as childhood, even if they were put to work at say four or five, six years of age? Yeah, I, I think if you, the, the, an interesting group to look at, of course, are communities that are still um, I mean, the, the anthropologists use forager rather than hunter-gatherer now as a description. So communities that are not agricultural, sort of going out and getting um, getting food from the environment, from from nature, from the world around them, but not not having farms, let alone having industrialization and factories and so forth. Um, and when you look at those communities, what you see is that children. First of all, until about five or six, children are kind of wandering off and doing things by themselves. Um, uh, doing things with other, sorry, not by themselves, doing things with other kids, but nobody's kind of sitting there and shaping what it is that they're doing. And then as gradually around six or seven, the children start to be sort of integrated into the things that the people around them are doing. And as I say, by the time you get to a six or seven-year-old, they'll quite spontaneously want to imitate what they see adults doing or take a little piece of what the adult is doing and do it themselves. So, you know, if you are cooking with, if I'm cooking with my, uh, my uh, seven-year-old uh, granddaughter who loves uh, the British baking show, that's what we spend our time watching. So we're gonna reproduce the, you know, marzipan <laughs> Battenberg cake. Um, she can actually really do those things and she can really learn in a, a really important way. So I think in the kind of environment in which we evolved, what happened was there was this transition from this early period of just exploration to a period where children were taking on more and more adult-like skills. But the way they were doing that was by watching all the adults around them who were actually right there in front of them in a village, say, doing all the things that adults do. And, And in my book, in The Gardener and the Carpenter, I have a couple of chapters about the way that children learn just by looking, by listening, by imitating what grownups around them are doing. So one thing is that. And then again, if you look in those cultures, the children will take that thing that the adult is doing and turn it into a game, turn it into play. Uh, uh, evidently in, in one of these societies, there are little animals 
that aren't really very good for meat, but that the children will hunt and, and just to sort of practice uh, as hunting practice. And everyone kind of says, yeah, that's like the toy hunting. It's not the, not quite the real hunting. So I think that's the kind of model for, uh, for how humans uh, develop. But of course, depending on once you have industrialization, then you can't be, you know, in the same place as your caregiver if your caregiver is in a dangerous factory. Once you have school, that really changes the, uh, that really changes the, um, that really changes the calculation. So, I mean, it's, you don't want to sort of say natural because the thing that's natural to human beings is that they can do lots of different things. But I think that kind of model where children are, are playing, but they're also imitating, finding out about what the people around them are doing is, is a really good model for children's learning. Um, language development, what, what are the critical stages as we understand them now to say, learn a second language much more difficult does it become after a certain age? Do we, do we understand more about that now? Yeah, I think that's a really good example where the science really changed our, or should change our practical, uh, our practical uh, uh, policies. So one thing that I think we really learned is that children are very naturally designed to learn multiple, um, learn multiple languages at the same time. And the point at which they reach puberty seems to be a period where neurologically that capacity to learn many languages gets more shut down. And this is part of a general pattern that I've talked about where children are, children's brains, for instance, seem to be very well designed to take in information, consider lots of possibilities, do lots of different things. And then as they learn more, the range of things they can do narrows. And language is a good example where Infants, for example, can learn all the different sound contrasts in all the languages of the world. But then once you learn that R and L is important to um, uh, an important dif dis distinction in English, then, then you stop paying attention to the other things that aren't important. Uh, that's a really clear pattern. And adolescence seems to be the place when that really shuts down. So of course, what do we do? We start teaching children second languages in high school at exactly the moment when they can't learn them anymore. Uh, it always drives me completely, it drives me completely nuts. So that's an example where everything that we know suggests that children learning multiple languages early is, does nothing but good um, and is something that we should really encourage. Yeah, one of the, um, God, one of the tragedies, honestly, this whole pandemic in the past year is the two Spanish speaking teachers in my girls' uh, preschool left, didn't come back um, after it was shut down for a while. And then we came back. So I wonder, you know, so we're talking a year ago, we're talking age around two and one. Um, I mean, Vivi, the one-year-old, she probably, I don't know how much she picked up of that, but if say you, you did that, you know, a child is able to absorb most of the basic building blocks of a language, but then for whatever reason, their parents stopped speaking in their native right. tongue at home. They didn't get as much practice. The brain starts to think, well, maybe this isn't as important. Can, can those be recovered? Was that still time well spent? What do we know about that? There's some evidence that for things like these sound systems, even if they, even if they, you know, you sort of forget them, that then when you're relearning them, it's easier to relearn those distinctions if there's been a time when you uh, were open to those distinctions and you could learn them in the first place. So I think even when you're not getting the second language, having the experience of having multiple languages still seems to help you to learn further languages, for example, um, later on. Let's talk about this tension between exploration and exploitation. You described mm -hmm. this in 
you know, a, lot, a number of different places, but, but certainly in the gardener and the carpenter. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Help us understand what's, what's going on there. So this is a really interesting idea that actually comes from uh, computer science. It's one of the ideas that, that people came upon just even at the very beginning of when computers were being invented. And so suppose you're trying to invent a computer, right? You're trying to make a system that will be intelligent. Well, it turns out there's two different kinds of things you could mean when you talk about a system that's intelligent. One thing is a system that can go out into the world and do things. So you give this system a goal, you say, go out and do this, and it can do that, figure out how to do that effectively. And almost all the artificial intelligence systems that we have now basically are designed to do that. So something like the programs that can uh, win at chess or go, the way they do that is they get a signal that says, okay, you know, you're doing better, you've got more squares and do the thing that you did before that led you to that goal. But the other kind of intelligence is, is exploration. So how about if there's something that you could do that you've never tried before? Or suppose there's a goal that you've never tried to accomplish but would actually be really good to accomplish. Um, the only way that you can find out about those things is by exploring, by extracting information from the world, for example, seeing all the things that people around you are doing, trying out different things yourself, trying out different ideas, trying out different ways of being. And the, the great insight is those two things really trade off against each other. So you can't design a system that simultaneously is going to be as efficient as possible at achieving a particular goal and is going to be good at exploring possibilities. And you can, you know, if you sort of think through it, right, if you're, if you're really quickly accomplishing one particular thing, you're not going to be trying out all the other things that aren't going to be very obviously helpful for getting to your goal. And if you're spending all your time trying out things, not knowing whether they're going to achieve your goals or not, you're not going to be as good at achieving your goals. And that's this basic exploration versus exploitation trade-off. And what I've argued is that one way to think about this puzzling long period of childhood that we have is that it's evolution's way of solving that explore-exploit trade-off because what happens is we have this early period where mostly what we do is explore. Mostly what we're doing is thinking about different possibilities, considering different options, extracting information from the world around us, figuring out what environment we're in. And then later on as adults, we can take that exploration and put it to use to do the kinds of things that we need to do in our everyday, in our everyday lives. So that's kind of the picture. I think that, I think that trade-off really defines a lot of what's important about, uh, about people. And it's a very different picture than the picture um, that I think we had for a long time, which was basically that children were sort of defective grownups. So that we think about development as being, you know, there's, there's this, uh, I always think of it as being sort of like the 35 year old brilliant academic who's like the peak of all of human development. And then everything is just sort of building up to that or falling off from that. Uh, falling off from that. Well, state. maybe the, many of us are defective uh, children as adults. I mean, <laughs> you flip it around. Well, I mean, it's... that's exactly the point. So now what I, but I think a much better way to think of it is there's these trade-offs and we have different developmental periods that are designed. So instead of trying to trade off at once, which we sort of do as adults, we have these different developmental periods that are uh, designed to maximize different um, uh, capacities. So if you're, if you're, and in particular, 
a lot of the things that we might think of as being bugs of childhood, like the fact that children are so noisy, both literally and metaphorically, that they're so variable, they're so random, they do all these weird things. They, they have this crazy pretend play that doesn't seem to make any sense where they're, you know, seeing that they're going to be something that's totally unlike anything real. Um, the fact that they spend so much time playing. Um, those things that are real bugs, if what you want is to, you know, put your coat on and get to, the fact that they have a much broader uh, perception, the fact that they're hard, not good at focusing their attention, the fact that they're not good at delaying gratification, all those things that seem like bugs are actually features if you think about a system that's designed to explore as much as possible, get as much information about the world as possible, and vice versa, the things that are really um, features from the, um, uh, exploit executive point of view, like having a narrow focus of attention, not looking at things that you're not, aren't important to you, delaying gratification. Those are really good. I mean, those are really important things that let us do what we want, but they're bugs from the perspective of exploring as widely as you can. Yeah, because so, I know you spoke at Google, you know, before, and I, I guess that's their idea, right? That their core business is search. It's helping you find what you're looking for, but they give all their employees, I guess they still do, you know, a certain yeah. amount of time per week to explore whatever it is, you know, project that uh, they're interested in. So you're still focused, but they're trying to recreate a pocket of that, that exploration right. there. Yeah. My, one of my slogans is that children are really the R and D division of the human species and we are production and marketing. They're, they're the blue, blue sky guys who get to just have fun and figure things out. So, so maybe it's the fact that AI are just defective children at this point. Do you think that um, your work in development, other people's work in the development of children will sometime translate into better AI systems? Is that being looked at currently? Well, it's not sometime, it's right now. The, right after I finish talking to you, I'm gonna be part of a group that um, is part of the Berkeley AI Research Group. Um, and we have a big project called Machine Common Sense. And the idea behind the project is to, um, is to try to take the things that we know about children's development, the things we just take for granted that children can do that current AIs can't do at all and try and see, here's a, um, an example, could we design, and we're, I mean, we're literally just doing this right now, could we design a curious AI? So we could, could we design an agent that instead of just trying to get the highest score on the game is trying to say, huh, how can I figure out how this game works? What could I do that would, let me get more information about it. Um, and I think the, the, the summary so far uh, is that the children, you know, an 18 month old is so much better at, so much smarter than any systems that we know of that there's a big gap still, but I think we could fill the gap by thinking about, well, what are the sort of things that kids are doing like being curious and exploratory? Could we build those into an AI system? Uh, another thing, by the way, that the AI people are really interested in, that's also characteristic of children that we mentioned before, is not only are children very exploratory, but they're very tuned into other people. We mentioned that before, you know, they're always constantly imitating what other people are doing, figuring out what's going on in other people's minds, um, taking what they've found out about other people and applying it to themselves. And uh, people in robotics, for example, are trying to see if you had a robot that was really designed to imitate what a person was doing or figure out why a person was doing what they were doing and then imitate it, that would make a much more robust uh, robot. So, mm. um, so we're trying to take those things that we just take for granted about kids that they play and they imitate us all the time and see 
if we could build that into an AI system. Yeah, even have it drop the checkers because it's just bored of checkers and wants to try chess instead, right? I mean, that's exactly yeah. So my an example that I really like is um, again you have to. The great thing about being a developmental psychologist is you get to tell stories about your grandchildren all the time, and nobody can stop you because you're <laughs> you're a professional. Uh, but a, an example I like to give is my my grandson plays what we call Addy Chess, my five-year-old. So my nine-year-old plays chess chess and the five-year-old, partly because he's imitating him, plays Addy Chess. And the way you play Addy Chess is first you take the pieces and you put them in the wastebasket and then you put them back on the, on the, on the board and then you take all the blue pieces and you put them, the dark pieces and you put them on one side and then you take all the light pieces and you put them on the other side. And each thing that you do is different. So it's kind of almost the opposite of chess chess. Instead of saying, here's this thing that has is the rules and here's the objectives, it's what are all the different goals I could have with this activity of, of playing chess? And that's really different from what uh, an AI would do. And mm -hmm. it may not make you as good at playing chess, but if I now go to the AI and say, okay, now let's change the rules. We're gonna change the rules of chess. So now, you know, the Knights are gonna be diagonal and you're going to have to go five moves first off. The AI is gonna have a really hard time uh, adjusting to that new situation. Whereas Addy, who's explored all those things beforehand is gonna be able to figure it out. Hmm. How have they adapted, your grandchildren and other children adapted to doing what we're doing right now on Zoom? I mean, you said you couldn't see your grand children for a year. Right. How has this changed things or, or do we know yet? Well, this gets back to something I was going to mention when you were talking about the methods that we use in developmental psychology. So because of the pandemic, we couldn't do any in-person testing anymore, which was a terrible blow for all of us. Um, so we thought, well, what can we do? Well, the kids are on Zoom. They're bored. They're at home with their parents. Maybe we could try doing some experiments on Zoom. And frankly, I thought, well, we could try, but this is going to be a disaster. We're not going to be able to get anything out of the kids. They're, they're going to be, you know, put off by this kind of interaction. Turns out just the opposite. Even the infants, even the babies were very happy to do experiments, very happy to play games, very happy to interact with people in this completely new medium. Um, and I think that in retrospect, I should have sort of recognized that's what childhood is all about, is here's a new environment you've never been in before. Figure out how to thrive and interact in, in that environment. So uh, I've been sort of impressed and surprised at how good children were, I think better than grownups were at adapting to this, um, adapting to this new medium. My grandchildren explained to me how you could like put funny faces on top of your face on <laughs> Zoom, which is not something that I had any idea that you could do. Yeah, we were I have to sure I, on that too, but. <laughs> yeah, I have to make sure I don't do that in the faculty meeting, suddenly have a unicorn face, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my daughter would love that. Yeah. So. So speaking of um, the Zoom medium and uh, how kids have adapted, there's a lot of concern about the learning loss of this year. The fact that kids yeah. of all ages have been have not been in school, and of course there is the social issues. Do you think there really has been a learning loss? I mean, the only way we are able to measure that is the fact that people are getting bad grades, they're testing poorly, but that's not necessarily learning per se. What's your feeling about the whole pandemic um, learn? learning loss crisis that people are talking about? Well, unfortunately, I think it's gonna be the same story that we see again and again, which is um, that we have these enormous uh, inequalities in our, in our um, 
society. And the inequalities are really exaggerated when you're talking about young children. So I think the middle-class children are gonna do just fine. They'll figure out how to do Zoom. They'll catch up to the things that they were learning before. The, the children who are suffering in various kinds of ways anyway are gonna be suffering even more because their parents were suffering even more as a result of the pandemic. And, and I think we have a lot of evidence that um, those kinds of uh, challenges sort of multiply. So, you know, if, you're, if you have one problem and then you don't have schooling and then you have, you know, a parent who's getting sick and then you have, you don't have caregiving available, those things don't just add up, they really multiply. So I think, I think the general, and you know, the hope, my hope is that this will make that problem, which was already, I think this is gonna be true about a lot of the pandemic, things that we already kind of knew were problems have become more vivid and exaggerated in the context of the pandemic. So we already knew there were these big gulfs between the experience of, of, uh, of different groups of kids. And, and what I hope is this will make us realize even after the pandemic that we have to do things to, to remedy those inequalities. I'm gonna jump a couple, I'm mindful of the time here. So I wanna make sure I get a couple things in here. So bounce yeah. around a little bit. I want to ask you about just difficult, maybe difficult for adults, conversation topics with kids, and then the questions that come up. So, you know, one would be the idea of death, you know, that, you know, all this ends one day. And I, I was thinking about this a few weeks ago because um, basically my, my father died just before my first daughter was born. So I know we're, you know, we're coming up to the, uh, you know, the uh, four year mark. And I, I thought, you know, oh, well, Allison Gopnik's coming on the podcast. You know, this will give me a good chance to think about this before she starts asking questions. And then I can, you know, we can talk about it then. And of course we go out to dinner, we come home and <laughs> their, their, <laughs> their hamster died. So <laughs> they didn't notice we, we got them to bed and I was like, Oh God, now I got to start thinking about this. I, I'm just curious. I think parents, maybe just, especially like me, you know, you just dread having to, to you know, you, yeah. there's childhood's very special and it's magical. And in some ways learning these things, strips away some of the magic, you know, and, and in this case, I had overthought it clearly because all she wanted to do is just, you know, the oldest daughter, all she wanted to do is, you know, see the hamster and that was it and right. hasn't really cared about it. But what, what do kids, especially a two-year-old, I don't, I don't think a two-year-old can really get this. And, oh. and, and my question is in the context of, you know, sadly, some children experience trauma and death and things, you know, up front or much earlier because it's, it's, you know, a reality in their, their, their lives. But for kids that are fortunate enough not to have that, what what does a four-year-old think about death, for example? Do they understand well, that? Yeah, I, I talked about this some in, in uh, my first book, In the Scientist in the Crib. There's really fascinating work about children's sort of everyday biology. And one of the things that seems to happen is that children, like the little ones, the two, three, three-year-olds, even the four-year-olds, start out not really understanding death as a biological phenomenon. They think it's something like, well, you know, the death is going to a different place. It's going to, um, uh, you know, it's moving, moving to a different country or being underground. They don't get the fact that it's this irreversible biological phenomenon. But by the time kids are about five or six, they do start understanding death in a way that's closer to the way that we understand death. And, and then it's often kind of shocking to them, right? Then they have to really come to terms with it. So um, you didn't tell me about this. Yeah, that's part of what they understand. And there's a wonderful study by, uh, there's a, a Japanese uh, psychologist named uh, uh, Hitani, who actually showed that children who had goldfish um, learned this big picture about biology 
much more quickly than, or more quickly than children who didn't. Um, there's also beautiful studies that show that rural children, children in uh, Native American uh, communities who are still, you know, living living a, a kind of rural life, seem to understand these basic ideas about biology earlier. You know, this is one where the the middle class city children really are leading this terrible deprived existence because they're not getting to see what the biological world is like, except yeah. maybe when they have a hamster or a goldfish. And what Hatani found was that children who had goldfish were more likely to understand. And again, if you've ever had a goldfish, you can see why this would be the case, <laughs> that they were figuring out these things about death in a kind of low stakes environment of, of the goldfish um, before the children who didn't. Yeah, nobody has their goldfish from their childhood because. Uh... Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and again, as with many things with children, um, it can be. Uh, uh, I I can remember my own youngest son having a sort of existential crisis when his goldfish died. But as you're describing with your daughter, then also recognizing that life goes on and, uh, and that's this is part of part of life. So. Um, and we're getting close here. Yeah. This is, talk about the idea of parenting. So if you do like a Google Ngram search, you know, and you search through terms of, you know, come up in books and writings, this is a more recent phenomena that it's kind of, yeah. kind of surfaced. Um, and I find this very difficult because I can read your books and, and I'm a big fan of your work. Um, but there's this, this kind of pull that you still want to be the carpenter in a way. Right. And, and just so everybody knows what I'm talking about, the, car, the gardeners, the idea of providing, correct me if I'm wrong, but providing, you know, the safe, you know, productive environment to grow up in, but allow them to do what they're, they're going to do as children and one day adults. And the car carpenter on the other hand is kind of a futile effort in many ways, but, but it's so hard because you want to prepare them as best you can, especially if you're fortunate enough to have the resources and you worry about everything from, am I spending enough time with them? Am I, um, you know, am I, are they getting enough sleep? How has this pandemic affected them? it's kind of a big question in here towards the end, but how can we be more informed about this? I mean, even doctors listening to this and nurses, they're very busy. They work a lot of holidays. They're not around. There's a lot of things that they miss and, and they worry about this too with their own children. How can we be more thoughtful about this instead of just running to Amazon and getting 10 parenting books and becoming right. even more, uh, more paranoid? Well, you know, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, 65 and my children are in their 40s and I have grandchildren and I still find myself thinking oh did I do the right thing maybe if I had done this other thing then you know he would have ended up doing being different you know why is my middle son so shy maybe it was something I did it's very hard to it's very hard to avoid that and to some extent I sort of have the feeling that um, if you're worrying then you probably don't have a lot to worry about but maybe if you weren't worried at all that would be something to worry about um, uh, what I hope is that thinking from this gardener kind of perspective will take some of the stress off of parents and parents have a lot of stress anyway. And, and what you hope is that there would be a more empowering and less anxious way of, of being in the world with the experience of being a parent, which is a great experience in lots of ways, you know, which has lots of richness and, and, uh, and is interesting and satisfying in all sorts of ways that I think kind of get undermined if all you're ever thinking about is here's what's going to happen 20 years from now, right? Uh, and I think if parents could kind of be feel more in the present about here I am with this particular child and we're 
doing the things that we do together rather than always thinking, how is this going to affect things in the long run? You know, development says it's really hard to predict how things are going to work out in the long run. I mean, given the basics of, you know, a loving, warm uh, set of caregivers, um, then there's a lot of stuff that just happens in a random, complicated way. So I think if you're, you know, children are, have got basic, warm, loving caregiving, which most children uh, it, who have enough resources have, then you really shouldn't be thinking about, is, am I doing this specific thing and what are the consequences going to be? The science certainly doesn't support any um, idea that there's some specific program you could have that would make the children come out a particular way in the long run. And one of the things that I argue in the book is I think we go back to this kind of explore exploit idea that children are designed to explore. I think the whole point of childhood is to introduce things that are new and unpredictable and variable and unlike anything that's gone on before into the world. So even if you could accomplish that end of shaping the children to be a particular way, you would have defeated the whole purpose of childhood by doing that, right? The whole point in a sense of having children is that they're gonna do these things that are totally unexpected that you would not have predicted beforehand. And that's good, that's that, I mean, it's, it's a bit ironic. Like if your children are doing something that you would never have expected that they would do, you've been a good caregiver, right? That's what a good caregiver does is give children the space to do things that you wouldn't have predicted beforehand, which is kind of why I think it's like being a gardener or at least being the kind of messy gardener I am where all sorts of unexpected things happen in the garden, but they're often the best things that happen. And I, I hope that having that approach really releases some of the anxiety and tension that, um, that parents uh, that parents are feeling. Now, some of it, you know, being guilty and anxious kind of just goes with the territory. So maybe some of it is just accepting that. But uh, but I think we do certainly nowadays uh, do much more of it, especially for middle class parents, than is is healthy or or good. I know some of this is controversial, and, and we may not even have time to fully explore it here at the end. But the idea of you know IQ scores, testing, um, polygenic personality scores. You know, I think, you know, there's a lot of temptation to think that we can predict all this very early, identify, you know, what used to be called academically gifted kids very early on, shuttle them on a different path. I mean, how do you think about these? How are these useful as tools and how are they uh, just the opposite? You know, they're, they're perhaps overused or, or overappreciated. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to go back to the explore exploit uh, problem uh, and I think this is really an, an interesting problem is if you set up a particular goal, this is something that happens in AI too, you know, so you, you say here, I want this system to do X. I want it to get a high score in Go. I want it to do well on this standardized test. It's always going to be true that the best way to do that is to use this kind of exploit method, right? It'll be to really train the system to do the one thing that you want it to do. But of course, the danger is now suppose you have to do something completely different. Now suppose you're trying to do something else. Well, it looks as if that kind of freewheeling exploration and play isn't going to make you better at doing any one specific thing, but it's going to make you better at dealing with novelty, being robust, dealing with things that are changing. And the trouble is it's very hard to assess that, right? By definition, uh, you're not going to be able to have a test that will tell you how well you'll do on a new test that is not a test that anyone's ever thought of before. Um, and I think a good example of this is if you look at the literature about um, preschool effects, for example, uh, one of the things that happened is you look at children who are in 
these uh, enriched uh, preschool environments, which is at least in the past was play-based kind of preschools. I think still in the present, everybody, most people think that's the best way for a preschool to work, kind of a, a slightly ramped up version of the kids in the village going out and exploring. Um, and then if you look at things like academic test scores, uh, a couple of years later, it looks as if those effects sort of fade out. And then the wisdom for a while was, oh, there's no point in investing in preschool because after, you know, it's not affecting your academic scores three years later. But then the fascinating thing is then when they looked 20 years later or 30 years later and looked at those kids as adults, the kids who were in preschool had better health outcomes to say something that's very relevant to your audience. They, they were more likely to be employed. They were, had better relationships. So the effects of the preschool weren't so much tuning to their particular academic scores, but things that probably do have to do with how do you deal with change? How do you deal with something that's different? Can you, you know, figure out how to change your behavior when suddenly there's a pandemic? Those were the things that that early uh, experience seemed to help kids to do. Makes sense. All right, to end things here, um, if you're looking at the next 10 years or so, what what are you most excited about in developmental research? And, and what's maybe one or two questions that are just, just haven't been answered yet that you'd be most most excited to learn, you know, assuming you point research in that direction, assuming you can. Well, one of the things that I've gotten very interested in, maybe partly because of becoming a, a grandmother, um, is this idea that there's a kind of complementarity between this special period of childhood and then this elderhood, this kind of 50 to 70 year old period, which is also very distinctively human. Chimps die by the time they're around 50. Um, and the idea is that caring and caregiving really is a really special thing to be able to do. And I think it's at least plausible that even though, again, you know, adults are doing this, elders are really particularly adapted to this kind of care and teaching mode. And again, we haven't paid much attention to it. We act as if, you know, the 35-year-old who's, who's starting the company is like the best example of a, of a human being being intelligent. And we don't think very much about those grandmothers and grandfathers and older people who are telling stories about what it was like when they were little or caring for children in a way that's really different from the way that parents care for them. And there's some evidence about this. So I'm, I, I'm really interested in what caregiving all about. What, is it, what does it mean? What do you have to do if you're caring for another person? What does it mean to transfer information to that other person as opposed to, um, as opposed to just taking care of them? And let me give you an example uh, I've been talking about with my colleagues in artificial intelligence, for instance. I said, you know, the problem with AIs is they'll do what you tell them to do and you can design ways that they'll be really good at doing what you tell them to do, but they aren't making up new goals for themselves. And one of the things that's really characteristic about humans is that we make up new goals. We make up new things that we're important. We, we reject the things that we thought were important in the past in favor of new ones and it's children adolescents, young people, the next generation, they're the ones who are really kind of doing that, inventing here's what the new goal is. So the job of a caregiver, which is incredibly challenging, is not just here's your goals you want to accomplish. And it isn't even just here's the goals of the person that you're caring for that you want to accomplish. It's figure out what the person you're caring for really wants to do and then help them to do it. And, you know, if you're caring, again, speaking to health professionals, this comes up if you're caring for elderly people, it comes up if you're caring for people who are ill. Uh, the big challenge is, you know, you don't wanna just say, 
all right, here's what I think you should do, go out and do it. You want to say, well, what is it that would be best for you? How can you be autonomous? How can you have your own goals, even though you're elderly or you're, you're ill? Um, and, and that's really true with children. So, you know, the whole point about adolescence is how do you get a teenager to both be autonomous enough so they can do things, take risks, decide things for themselves, and, and yet not have disastrous outcomes. That's incredibly challenging. And we don't know, humans somehow manage to do that. The moms and the dads and the grandparents and the elders manage to do that. And we don't know very much about how, how that's possible. So that's, that's the thing I'd really like to focus on in this last stages, in the last stages of my uh, career. And of course that has important policy implications too. What is it that we could do from a policy perspective that would really respect this caregiving uh, capacity, which we, which we so much undervalue um, uh, compared to other kinds of uh, abilities. And I think, again, the, um, the pandemic has been really vivid in making us realize these people who we have no respect for, we don't pay, the people who are in the, you know, in the assisted living facilities taking care of elderly people, the people who are in the childcare taking care of children, they are turn out to be essential workers, like really essential workers. And, and what we can do as a society to enable that essential work to happen, I think that's, that's going to be one of the biggest uh, challenges ahead of us. Well said. All right, Allison, I know you got to get going. I wish I could keep you like two more hours, but <laughs> got other, other places to go. So um, to end here, just tell everybody how they can learn more about your research, find you online, and then tell us quickly about that new book when you expect that to be coming out. Yeah, well, I, I have a nice title for it. It's going to be called Curious Children, Wise Elders, but I have to write the thing first. So I'll, I'll let you know once I've, once I've actually got it written. Besides, I sort of figure getting the title, all right, that's like half the, half the, half the job. Um, but uh, alisongopnik.com, you can see all of my columns. In fact, I just updated it, all my columns for the Wall Street Journal, all my, my research papers, um, uh, my TED Talk, my... Uh, conversations and podcasts. I'll put this podcast up as well. Um, uh, you can you can find out everything about the kind of work that we're doing there and the work that even more important, the work that's going on in our in our lab and others. Well, we'll get all of that up online. And Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. And and even more than that, thank you for the work you've done because it's not just maybe I might be a better parent. I think for for being informed, you know and following your research, reading your column in the, in the uh, Saturday section of the Wall Street Journal over the years. But I think you've helped uh, many of us appreciate being a parent. It's a pretty special privilege. And um, thank you for that. That's uh, it's pretty pretty awesome job being a dad. Well, thank you so much. That's the thing that I would like to feel is, you know, written on my epitaph was, was letting people have a sense that this amazing thing that we all do and we all take for granted, just how, just how amazing and deep and important and significant it is. Yes, it is. Well, everyone, that is Allison Gopnik. Like I said, we'll get everything up online and whenever, wherever you're listening, take care. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>